Hi, this is Carolyn. Thank you for joining me for our very first episode. Today, I will talk with trainer Ron Moquette, a compassionate horseman and rising star who always puts his horses first. This is Racehorses Etc., the podcast celebrating horsemanship. I'm Carolyn Conley. I've covered horse racing on TV for over a decade, exercised some of the best horses in the world, and represented top jockeys. Here, I speak to icons and everyday racing folks to deepen our understanding of horsemanship. Hey, Ron, welcome to Racehorses Etc. I'm so glad you made it to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. You know that this podcast is about celebrating horsemanship. And when I was putting it together, you were one of the first people I thought of to have on the show. So it's really cool that you were able to make it. Well, thank you. I, you know, of all the things that you, you're uh, thought of in this game, you know, you could be thought of a winner. You could be thought of someone that, uh, that represents the sport well. But being, being thought of as a horseman is everyone's ultimate respect, I think. Well, it's been fun getting to know you. I knew you while I covered racing on television. I mean, you did win 814 races as of now, and your horses have earned almost $29 million. And of course, you have multiple graded stakes winners like Whitmore and Seat Gold. But I didn't have the opportunity to really get to know you until I moved to Kentucky and spent some time at your stable at Churchill and then again at Hot Springs. And I was immediately taken aback by initially how great your horses look. And then by the way you interact with them, because you were jumping in the stalls with the horses and introducing me to every one of them. And they weren't just fillies or geldings, but big stud colts. And they loved it and they respected you. And I just don't see that very often. Where did this come from? And did you grow up with horses? I think it comes from a natural respect of, uh, of just how awesome these animals are. And I grew up with every animal and me trying to trying to use uh, a relationship with the animal as, as my default relationships in life. I, I love, I love them. I respect them. And I really like to try to get to know each and every one. So I think that I, I depend on them for the relationship more than they depend on me growing up. And I think that carries over. Did you grow up in a horse racing family? No, uh, we, the only horse racing around my family until I was probably 11 uh, was uh, on the TV the first Saturday in May. <laughs> I can relate to that. I used to idolize Charles C. Canney. So I was watching from Spokane, Washington. How great was she, huh? Oh, my goodness. And then one day I worked for her. I became her assistant at ABC Sports. And it was just such an honor. I mean, anything I could do for her. What a classy lady. Yeah, that's the same way I feel about whenever I'm around certain trainers and stuff. I'll be stable. They'll say, well, you're stabled in, in uh, Richard Mandela's barn. I'm like, you know, I'll immediately take it aback with respect. And you realize <laughs> that we're in the same race, you know, but it, that's, the, that's a pretty cool feeling. Well, let's start at the beginning then. Tell me about your mentor or maybe your earliest influences in horsemanship with racehorses. With racehorses, it was a, a gentleman named Bob Clift. Uh, he was he would break two year olds uh, to get ready for other people, and and uh, he had a they had a futurity operation in quarter horses, which means they would 
prep the horses and they'd have to perform uh, in a paturity trial and you'd pay these fees all the way up to be to remain eligible so it was very important that these horses peaked on a certain day and uh, this this gentleman was very good at, at getting them to the point to where the next guy could carry them on over proper galloping form and and habits that would that would uh, lend itself to soundness throughout the career and and it very uh, fortunate to be able to be around someone that was just ground level. Hey, we're going to teach this horse to stand here because you don't want him doing all this because it may cause him to put pressure here. And, you know, from, from leading a horse out of the barn to making sure that it's, you've done everything to uh, keep safety in mind and, you know, constant health uh, to, to getting them fed up the right way. You don't want them, peaking too early you don't want their their bodies to uh get way ahead of their minds and and that was pretty pretty uh good fortune for me to be around someone like that you often hear about people saying you know the horse was peaking at the right time how do you know when they're actually peaking you see the guys that keep horses around for many years and uh you know the reason they do that is strictly because they've they've been able to see the signs of, of how to build a horse up to a race, get it to peak and then get it to regroup and, uh, you know, repair itself wherever mentally, physically, if, if it did, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a, an art and it's like dancing, you know, it's like if you have a, if you have a partner that knows, knows how to read your, you know, your dance moves, it, it looks a lot better. And I would say that, that's one of the things that if I have anything that I'm super proud of in the game, it's that I can spend a little time with the horse and see if it needs more or needs a little break or needs backed off of, or maybe, you know, maybe needs a little extra attention of something. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be a good dance partner in every horse's career. <laughs> I love it. And I know that you even had a protocol even recently during the COVID-19 pandemic situation at Oakland Park where you guys had a successful racing season and you finished strong, you finished fourth in the standings. What was your routine to keep close to your dance partners during this time of social distancing? Well, it was kind of weird due to the situation that I'm in. Uh, COVID's scary for everyone, but for the for somebody who has an immune disorder and and it its primary attacks the uh pulmonary region it this was super scary for for people with the stuff I have so we had to come up with a a protocol that allowed me to be in the barn with with no one basically so all the grooms and and the night watchmen the only person that would be there when I was there was the night watchman because the hours that I would get there to not get in the way of everyone else and in the horse's schedule, you would have to come sometimes like, you know, three thirty in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, whatever it was. And I would get to look at all the horses and go through them without anyone there wearing the gloves, wearing the mask, understanding that, that horses, you know, aren't used to receiving me at that time sometimes. And, and uh, spend a little time one-on-one -on -one with each horse and then try to be out of there before the rest of the world woke up and come to the barn. And that was a way to, to uh, for me 
during my situation to stay safe. I would imagine the horses appreciated you being there. It seems like you're pretty close to most of them. Yeah, we've got, I've got different relationships. I, I tell everyone it's like the, that you've seen the YouTube videos where the teacher's standing there and all the kids come in and they got their own individual handshake. <laughs> yeah. You know, where they may have, a, you know, the, the sideways handshake or the fingertips or whatever, and, and they may do a little dance. Well, I have that with every horse. And I'm kind of like the teacher that's, that's you know, you, you got a different way of communicating with, you, you know, my, my wife says that my accent changes whenever I talk to certain people that I, I automatically blend in trying to, you know, I guess I don't know if it's deep down trying to blend in or whatever, but if I'm talking to someone from, from where I'm from, I sound like them. And then whenever I go up north, I lose my accent completely. And I think it's the same way with horses. Because if you come in certain stalls with, with a big stout coat, he don't want, he doesn't respect you if you, if you're weak and you, you know, are sweet and kind. You have to, you know, you have to be stand your ground and say, you know, I am, I am here equal with you, and we're gonna get to where we need to go by us working together. And to where a filly, you might go in there and be super quiet and let her come to you and. So we change we change the way we talk to each horse. <laughs> and I remember a chestnut filly that would stand with her butt to the door, and you were so patient with her. Um, she was quite different than all the other fillies in the barn. Tell me about her. Uh, that's Subiaco. She's uh, she wants to be she wants to be courted. She doesn't like to be pushed around. She you have to let her come to you, and if not, the relationships. It's about like if you walked into the house with your significant other and you go, you know, hey, lucky you, I'm here, you know, and you're not <laughs> going to get the response and you may get a, a mad partner for the rest of the day. Where if you walk in and you go, hey, how was your day? I'm so excited to see you. And, and you know, and you come on their terms, they're a lot easier and more more willing to take in any information you want to give. And with her, she's a she's basically the alpha in every relationship uh, with the rider and the hot walker and everything and so we just have to have to get along with her to be efficient and effective we have to get along with her on her uh, on her terms and her terms is I take my time every day to let her decide when I can visit and she always lets me visit and it's always when she's ready. <laughs> now, a horse like that that's so particular, obviously you found the key to her and you've had success. Are there horses where you might say, okay, this has gone too far. They've become spoiled and we need to draw the line. Are there those types as well that you deal with? Of course. And the thing is, is that everything that I do with a horse is, is basically in their best interest. So if I if I have to get on to a two-year-old colt that's rearing up and pawing, well, he has to understand that the reason that I'm not wanting him to do that is what if he falls over and hurts himself while he's acting up? And that concrete isn't very very favorable to, to uh, his health. So I would get on to him and say, no, we're not doing this because it's what's best for him. It, it, he can't act like that. Because not just is it a danger to to the handler, the hot walker, the gallop person or whatever, but it's a danger to himself. 
So when I do things at all with correcting or, or, you know, any time that I have to make sure that they're not too spoiled, it has to do with, we have to first ensure that you're healthy at the end of the day. And if this action or habit is making you where you're putting your health at risk, then we have to, we have to handle that now. Well, one horse who has a very strong personality, but you've had tremendous success with him is probably the most popular horse in Hot Springs, Arkansas, Whitmore. And he, um, I watched him a couple of races ago when I was at Oaklawn before the pandemic. And you were out of town at, I think, your son's wedding. You know, he he kicked behind the gate and he was very much making his presence felt. And it's almost as though with you out of town, you know, all bets were off. But It's a substitute teacher kind of deal. <laughs> you know, you've got you, the teacher comes back and says, I can't believe Tommy acted like that. And, you know, well, he's not the same whenever you're not there. I I think that's what it was. It was also the fact that it was the first time the rider got to ride him. And, and certain horses are easy. Anybody can get on them and get the absolute best. Just like certain children are easy. Anybody can teach them and get the absolute best. And then sometimes you have to get familiar and, and, uh, and with Whitmore, he is a hundred percent. You have to get familiar and understand, you know, where he's coming from or he's going to battle. Well, Joe Talamo has obviously developed a strong relationship with him. And I remember you naming him on for the first time. He hadn't been on Whitmore before. How, what has he learned through the course of riding Whitmore and what have you seen develop between the two of them? First and foremost, the majority, we're lucky. The the caliber of riders that's out there, they're horsemen. You know, there's, uh, especially the top 20. They're, they're just not riders. They're, they understand it. And after the race, the first time he rode him, which I don't let anyone work him, so that's my fault, but that's how I've kept him sound and happy is I've had the same people galloping, the same people working throughout his entire career and never let a rider. And, uh, uh, the reason I do that with Whitmore is because Whitmore doesn't act the same in the mornings as he does the afternoon. And I don't want him confused. And, you know, there are certain triggers that you look for. And I don't want him to be thinking this is what's going on in the afternoon. And it's not. So I thought it would actually move us forward, just keep a clean slate. And But he's very, he's very strong and he likes to play with you and he likes to play with riders. And Sometimes he'll make you think he's going to get out, and sometimes he'll make you think he's going to get in. If you overcorrect him, then he, if you correct him a little, it, he he's okay. But if you do the natural reaction, which is, you know, kind of, hey, we're getting out a little, he'll start embellishing just because he knows he's got you. And <laughs> I think that the natural horseman in Talamo was able to say, okay, I understand you now. Uh, you're just playing with me. <laughs> And now we know what to do. And now that he has that, same thing Rosario said the first time he wrote him. He goes, okay, I know him now. You know, he's, he's, uh, he's messing with me. So after he won the King, or was second rather in the King Cotton, he won the Hot Springs, his usual prep for the Count Fleet. And he's won the Hot Springs stakes four years running and the Count Fleet three years running with a second in between. Describe the reception of the fans or how he's received rather by the fans in hot springs now that he's made such a mark. I think the, the thing that helps our sport 
tremendously is is having fans and uh with Whitmore he had so much put on him because he was he was on the derby trail and hot springs arkansas a loves horse racing b loves the arkansas derby c loves the kentucky derby and d will follow them if you did any of those will follow you throughout so you've naturally got a wider a more broad fan base if you did those things so a lot of people got familiar with whitmore as a horse that was pointing to the arkansas derby and then when he come back as a four-year-old as a sprinter and was so successful winning five of his first races and the marquee race, which would be the Count Fleet, you know, now it got people that was tied into him as a three-year-old on a derby trail. Now they're back, they're familiar with him and they're, they're back with him on, you know, as a sprinter. And then he goes to the big stages. And when you leave Arkansas, it doesn't matter. When you come to Arkansas and you run well, when you leave, Arkansas owns you. They, <laughs> this fan base, you know, they, they're, they're not preoccupied with what the, you know, with what the Giants are doing or what the Cowboys are doing. They, this is their sports franchise. So they have a very, you, you've been to the races, you've seen it. They have a very loyal fan base. So the fact that he did what he did here and then when he went to, to, uh, to New York and did well and Keeneland did well, he went everywhere there's people. And put on a good show. So I well, think he's. I think they they respect his his willingness to try and be consistent, and then the familiarity of being around. Yeah, what a warrior he is! A lot of fun. He reminds me, as does the atmosphere of being at Long Acres in Seattle, Washington, before it was closed. And I came up in Washington, and the fans there were so much fun and so enthusiastic. And there was a horse named Captain Condo that kept winning the Long Acres Mile, you know, a couple of years running. And he was a big gray that would gallop around in the morning. And on the way home, he would drop his rider on a fairly regular basis and then just trot through the barn area. And uh, he owned the place. Uh, I love that. And, you know, that's the thing. If if Whitmore went out and acted like American Pharaoh, which American Pharaoh was just a darling. He was a, he was a, a runner and very professional. I think that he would still have a lot of people that, that loved him, but a lot of people like his attitude and, you know, they know that, you know, watch, I've had people tell me, send me, send me emails and texts and stuff. I knew Whitmore was going to run well because he kicked before he went in the gates. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. And, you know, I knew Whitmore was going to run well because, uh, you know, he was, he was bouncing around before, you know, in the post parade and, and he act like he was going to strike the pony. I mean, you know, they all like that little bit of, uh, Hey, I'm a, I'm a bad boy. And your wife, Laura has had played a big part in his success as well. She's your assistant trainer. So tell me about that relationship at work and um, how do your views on horsemanship align? Um, you know, she originally first come to the track, and we both was working for Bernie Flint. Um, that was in the day that a lot of the guys didn't didn't allow young girls to gallop, and you know, so she was started off as a hot walker, and I was I was there, and I would fill in wherever I could, walk hots, drive the truck trailer, 
you know, clip horses and she was willing to, to work as an 18 year old. And I think I was like 22, 21. So I would, uh, I would notice that she was a hundred percent horse, everything. It wasn't for the job. It wasn't for the money. It, it wasn't, it, it was, I like horses and I don't care if I make extra, I'll be here. I don't care if, uh, if that horse, if we got someone that didn't show up and there was four horses that needed, needed groomed and, and done up in fours and packed feet, we stayed there and it wasn't even a question. It's just, we had the same interest in the care of the animals and, and the respect. So we got along on that when we were friends before we ever started dating. And that carries over. You know, I do not have to worry if I'm at the track and she's in the barn that something's going to be shortcut or, you know, most people's assistants are unbelievable and all that. But I never have to worry if someone's in a bad mood and wants to get out of the barn and leave because the people that I have have been taught by she and I and they've been taught to respect the, the job and the horse. You mentioned Bernie Flint. Would you say he's one of the bigger influences in your approach, in your horsemanship? He's definitely, definitely uh, one of the ones that, I, he's the first thoroughbred trainer I ever was around. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think he's very underrated in the amount of respect he has in the industry. I, you know, if you've ever looked him up, he's had an unbelievable career. And he, you know, the fact is, is that nowadays, the uh the internet and social media controls who's popular and and tvg and and other gambling you know mediums control who's popular and the older guys that's been doing it for 40 and 50 years because they don't gravitate towards social media and do interviews and whatever they're kind of overlooked somewhat and he's in that but he's been very very successful and and uh he did it he did it uh the right way you know he could take a cheap horse and and beat somebody else with a with a better one and i love that so he made a lot out of kind of a little in a sense and what do you think the key was to him sustaining horses over the long term and enabling him to be competitive with maybe a smaller barn. Bernie's biggest attribute, if, if I'm thinking, if, if I'm saying it, uh, I don't know if he'd agree with me or not, but he starts with uh, a deep understanding of how a horse should be made. So whenever he goes to the sale, he wins a lot of races by horses he buys. And what I mean by that is, you know, you, if you've, if everybody's got a hundred thousand dollars and we're all equal and we're up going out there to buy, to buy, you know, whatever we can buy for a hundred thousand, Bernie's gonna, gonna get a better horse for the right price than someone else. And, you know, I think that right there that starts. And then once you get a fast horse, he's very good at getting it to the races and ready to run. Well, he's, he's won a lot of, a lot of races, been the leading trainer at Churchill and Keeneland and, and Turfway for years. I mean, he was, he was Dale Romans and Mike Maker and Asmussen before these guys were. And he was doing it on a smaller budget, much smaller budget. And he was doing it uh, with, with less, uh, 
with less purchasing power. So mm-hmm. I, I just think that that's, that's pretty cool. And that's what I grew up respecting, that kind of stuff. You know, a guy that could, could take 50000 to the cell and, and go beat the guys that was taking 500000 And that's, he can do that. Over and over, he can do that. The horseman. You mentioned Bob Clift. You worked for him. He was a quarter horse guy. Is he still with us? Is he still yeah, around? He's, uh, he calls me after big races. Uh, I, I tell him he don't watch allowances. Uh, he doesn't watch any claiming races. But <laughs> he, uh, I'm best friends with his son. We've always been best friends. And that's how I, how I originally started this crazy thing. Uh, you know, was being friends with John, his son. And, and then he would hear of me boxing and doing different things. And he would say, you know, you're not, you're not built to be very good at boxing. You ought to try something else. And, you know, I could use you at the, at the barn. If you want to come get on horses, get tired of getting beat up and that kind of stuff. But, <laughs> but he does, he, he's the first one to congratulate me when we win a big race. And, and to tell me he thought we'd win it, you know, and just a, he's the, a throwback guy, but he's very cool. Do you call him up and consult him uh, here and there? You know, what I do is I, uh, he's long since retired. And, but what I do is when I'm driving somewhere, like if, when I'm on the days that you've been there, where we go to Keeneland and Churchill back and forth for the sales. And, and if you're mm-hmm. stable at Keeneland, you have to, or Churchill and you got to run at Ellis. Those days I'll call him up and, and sometimes he'll tell me the same stories and, and, uh, and I know what the end is going to be. And, and I just let him tell me, you know, I, <laughs> I got a whole bunch of respect for the things he's done and the things that he's allowed me to do. So, uh, a lot of times I'll just call him up and he'll tell me what's going on in his world and, and, uh, and tell me what he knows about what's going on with me. And then, I'll ask him something. Usually it's a reminiscing deal. Like, you remember what you did with this filly that was tying up? Well, I had a filly like that the other day and I did that. He'll, and then he'll, uh, he'll restart that conversation and just tell me the whole thing. Well, what I did was, is I took some ginseng root and, uh, or ginger root and, uh, ginseng powder and ground it up and put it with baking soda and a little honey and, you know, and I I knew all that, but I'm gonna let him tell me the whole thing again because A, it don't hurt and B, it makes him feel good. So I like it. That's respect for the horseman that went before us. I love it. And did he teach you the sauerkraut trick with the vinegar? No. Bernie Flint is the one that and you know, I'm young and got a lot of energy and, and a whippersnapper and whatever else you want to call it, but when he they he had bought a horse from the cell that had a massive injury. And his name was Simon Lord Levat. And it was a son of Lord at War. And you can't buy those. You know, that's back when, in today's world, that's tapping. You know, Lord at Wars were just runners. And and people in Bernie's price range didn't get them. So Bernie uh, had bought this horse for like $7,000 or something off the Winburn Farms. Because it had a, it had gotten loose and gotten hung up in a guide wire, and ripped a bunch of proud flesh off of off of the bottom part of its hawk all the way down to the uh, to the fetlock, just nothing there but proud flesh. 
So Bernie was like, we'll fix this horse. And, and so I get it. And I said, Hey, uh, I got it all cleaned up. Can I get some wound powder or, you know, some, some stuff that you can buy at a tax store. And Bernie was like, you know, with his deep voice and, and, uh, only way a, a, a guy from new Orleans, that's six foot four and 300 pounds could tells me how dumb I am. And, and says, I'm going to fix this horse with, with sauerkraut. And I'm like, what in the world? This man has lost his <laughs> mind. You know, they eat weird down there. They do everything weird. So I was like, okay. So I didn't believe it. And he told me, go to the store and buy some pantyhose and four bottles of sauerkraut. Make sure that it's got vinegar. So I said, all right, so I didn't understand it, but the pantyhose, uh, we go and get the the deal, and he told me what to do, and I did it. And thinking, well, this is something I have to do for my boss before I go do whatever the vet says that <laughs> fixes the horse. Okay. So he says, no antibiotics, no nothing. The proud flesh is the problem. We're going to fix that. So we put the uh, pantyhose up the leg, and we filled. We put a little pressure with a vet wrap, just a very slight pressure around at the base of where the injury was. And then we filled it up with the sauerkraut about to where it had about an inch around the pantyhose all the way around. And it was very even. And the pantyhose held it together. And then we took the juice out of the sauerkraut. We poured it all over the leg and then immediately wrapped it with plastic wrap all the way up even. And he, I said, okay, now what? Do I put a standing bandage on it? Do I what? He said, he said, you can put a standing bandage on the bottom, but put pepper spray on the top so he doesn't pull it. So I did it. And then I thought to myself, this is goofy. It's not going to work. And, and he didn't ask me about it the next day. So I said, what do you want me to do with this? Should I take it off and see what? He said, no, don't even look at it for three days. Just leave him alone. Don't walk him cut his feedback so he's not too hyper and uh and we'll look at it in three or four days so the third day uh i run in there and and we pulled it i couldn't wait to see what was going on and get him started on what i thought would fix him and whenever i pulled it it off i noticed that the flesh had had started to get a very healthy pink color instead of aggravated red and i started seeing these little micro hairs growing and I was like, this is crazy. This is, you know, well, there's actually a science to it. You know, the sauerkraut holds the vinegar. The vinegar doesn't allow any of the proud flesh to, to grow and be irritated. And it keeps it clean and cool. And, and, and so the, the science behind it does work. And so after five days of me just pouring new vinegar over top of the sauerkraut, uh, we've got a horse that's no longer bleeding from proud flesh and starting to grow hair. And then we gradually start tack walking him and then we start training him. And then the next thing you know, we're, we're, uh, betting on him on Kentucky Oaks day and, and everybody, <laughs> everybody made money. Wow. And he became, he, he became a, a winner on Kentucky Oaks day. Yeah. He won his first out on Kentucky Oaks day. And, uh, Dean Coots was riding him, or 
is Dean Coots, Brian Peck, and Tracy Bear was his writers. But uh, I think Dean Coots was supposed to ride him and had to ride another horse, and I may have misspoken. It was it was Brian Peck. But uh, either way, I remember he come out of the auxiliary hole because of, of the, it was like a, the fourteen horse and drew into the body of the race, and, and he could run. Man, he was a fast, beautiful horse. To this day, probably one of the the prettiest horses I've ever seen. Hmm. And he ran a long time and on every surface and was everything that you'd want a, a good horse to be, except Bernie bought him and fixed him. And, and I, I always give credit for that. I love the old remedies. And I think most horsemen do. And they like to reminisce about some of the ways we used to look after these racehorses before some of the more scientific products came on the market a lot of this knowledge is disappearing. It's going away. Um, what are some of the things that you want to pass on to the next generation of horsemen as you become one of the more senior horsemen? What kind of legacy do you want to create? Well, I hope first off that, you know, those guys grew up depending on horses and appreciating them for a different, different deal. It's a different time, you know, people my age jumped in four wheelers and, and, you know, motorcycles and whatever. And those guys grew up really depending on horses to get them from point A to point B. And I'm talking about people that are now in their eighties. So their, their love and respect for the horsemanship side was more primal than, than a kid today that may only go to the track to bet. And then they fall in love with the horses. So I think my job to for the next group coming is to make sure that everyone's infected with the right virus and understand <laughs> that once you fall in love with a horse and you appreciate you appreciate the sport for what it is it's it's to better the breed and to do the most with what you have and you get out of the ROI mentality of and the win percentage mentality and you get to the basic of this is a wonderful, noble animal that's going to do exactly what we prepare him to do, and and usually without question. So it's a huge responsibility, and, and more importantly, it's it's there's a huge amount of appreciation that needs to go to that. Preparation is a key part to what you do. I see how meticulous you are around the barn in terms of the notes to the staff and things of that nature. But I've also seen your closet door in your office, and you were very intentional with that closet door. Would you describe that? Yeah, the what I do is is I believe from a kid that whatever I think I can do, I can do. If I if I write it down and I prepare to be successful and I do everything that it takes to be successful, then I will be successful. So first you have to think it. And, you know, there's been a lot of books and I don't know how much of it I've taken on from, I read everything uh, and I love the power of the mind and I love uh, the power of positive thinking. So I wrote down all the races I wanted to win. And uh, whenever, and, you know, whenever you're a, a 23 year old trainer and you're riding down races, you know, some of the best races out there haven't even been, you know, thought up yet. You know, we were just getting to know the breeders cup 
and we were they we didn't have the Dubai race and we didn't have the Saudi Arabia race or the Pegasus or any of those. But so I wanted to win the races with the names that I knew, like, you know, the uh for instance the Forgo, the Stephen Foster, the Count Fleet, uh the Vanderbilt. I wanted to win all those races that had been around forever. And then I wanted to win the Breeders' Cup Sprint because that's where I thought the fastest horse in the world was. It doesn't matter who wins the Kentucky Derby. The most races in this country every year are ran at six furlong distances. That They run maybe six races a year at a mile and a quarter. So congratulations on winning that. That's great. But everybody's competing at this six furlongs. So I thought whoever wins that has the fastest horse in America. And I wrote that down. And most of my races that I wrote down early were sprint races. And then, and then we, uh, we gravitated towards some of the other ones. But I keep writing them on there, and then I get to keep taking them off. So I feel like, uh, you know, I, I don't take them off. But, I mean, I take them off the list of, of accomplishments. I, uh, I think it's because I believe I can do it, and I put a plan in to do it. You manifest it. And is that a chalkboard door where you write with chalk or is it painted? No, it's painted. Yeah. You yeah. painted those names down and yeah. you won I've those won, races. I've won. There's probably 20 names on there and I've won like 17 of them. And they're like crazy. <laughs> who who writes down DeFrancis Dash? Well, the reason I wrote that down was because there was a horse that I followed that I wanted, you know, that I liked. And I thought, well, that's someone on maybe maybe Charles C. Canty said it, you know, on a deal. Well, this is one of the premier sprint races in the world. It's been here for X amount of years and you know, this is a, a stepping stone to the Breeders' Cup or so I wrote that down. That's a race I wanted to win. And me being from, you know, from a border town of Arkansas and Oklahoma, I didn't grow up in Maryland and say, you know, one of these days I'm gonna travel great distances to win this one particular race. They still run a race called the Preakness there. The Pimlico Special. I didn't write those. I wrote down the DeFrancis, and I I ran in it twice and won it once and run second once. So it's just weird how it works out. What name belongs on that door that you haven't put up there yet? Um, I think now that I'm seeing how the industry is evolving, I think you know, honestly, I didn't care about winning the Kentucky Derby until after about my tenth year of training. Because I saw that those are the people that get the opportunities to have the good horses. So if you want to get to work for the people that that can give you the good horses that that win those kind of big money races, that's where the lion's share of our money is every year is in those the Breeders' Cup Classic and and the Derby and and you know those are always the big ones. So I thought, well, I'm going to put the Kentucky Derby on there. Uh, and I'll put uh, some of the other route races up. I, I love route races. I just never thought that it was that big of a deal until like the last 10 years. And uh -huh. when I wrote down the Kentucky Derby on there, the very first two years, I was in the Kentucky Derby. I didn't win it, <laughs> but I was in it. And, you know, one year I had two horses that that I had trained was in the Kentucky Derby. So if you think a guy from, you know, Pocola, Oklahoma, can have make up two of the 20 that come in there. And oh, by the way, my horses together bought 50 
cost $54,000 in the sale ring combined. And they were one of the 20 that were allowed in the Kentucky Derby. That's awesome. Yeah, that's super that's wonderful. Cool. I'm proud of that. Horsemanship and the power of being intentional, writing things down. That's right. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure and uh, love to do this again down the road and uh, catch up again. But thank you for being on Racehorses, et cetera. Hey, anytime. I enjoyed it. Awesome. See you next time. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Racehorses, etc. Please go to carolynconley.com and become a Racehorses Insider. We'll keep you up to date with exclusive content and more. That's it for now. Remember, until we meet again, enjoy the horses.